Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. The Convention on the Settlement of Investment Disputes between States and Nationals of Other States, or the ISDS Convention, came into force in 1966. It was written by the World Bank, which established, funded, and governed the administration of the International Center for Settlement of Investment Disputes. Prior to 1997, the number of cases registered with the ICSID didn't hit double digits, but the proliferation of bilateral and multilateral investment treaties in the past few decades has led to an escalation of cases heard in arbitration panels throughout the world. As of June 2022, there were 3,289 investment treaties and 1,229 cases filed. One could hardly have come up with a more creative structure to chill public policy, insulate investors, and protect the interests of large multinational corporations, including lack of accountability, lack of transparency, and structural conflict of interest issues. Practitioners double hat as arbitrators, so they're on the deciding panel of past and potential clients. The World Bank Group has also been historically conflicted with the IFC directly pressuring states to accept the dispute mechanism for investments it was a shareholder of, to its liberalization agenda in utilizing the conditionalities of its facilities to impose privatization. And numerous water companies have taken to developing nations to arbitration over contracts being denied or not renewed even though the water company was not fulfilling its terms of the contract. The mechanism is a neo-colonial regime established to putatively encourage investment in developing states as investors were concerned about expropriation and unfair treatment in domestic courts. The mechanism continues to entrench the subject positioning and wealth transfer from the global south to the global north, with two-thirds of cases concerning companies from the global north claiming against states from the global south. The resource disparity between developing states and their claimant investors, in addition to the exorbitant awards, provides a particular advantage to multinationals who can leverage the threat of an investment settlement dispute in any negotiation with a state. The interpretation of expropriation and unfair advantage have been interpreted rather widely and in the interests of investors so that investors can claim indirect expropriation and claim damages that are too attenuated and not sufficiently proximate for domestic courts to hear. Governments, including governments of the global north, that make good faith policy choices in social welfare, public health and environmental protection are facing challenges to these policies by investors that complain these policies harm their investment and ability to make profits. The requirement of a stable investment environment thus leads to regulatory chill and prevents any improvement in public policy for the greater good, including much needed divestment from fossil fuels. A significant number of cases have involved extractive projects, in particular from the fossil fuel industry, claiming increased environmental protections harms their profits. In deciding these matters, arbitration panels do not take into account international environmental law, international human rights law, or address any illegal conduct or contractual breaches by the investors. It is decidedly a pro-investor regime. The faults of ISDS speak to a greater problem of fragmentation in international law, which separates public from private international law, and which segments and thus limits the strength and implementation of international human rights law and international environmental law. We need a holistic, open, and more democratic international legal structure and jurisprudence. I recently spoke with Lisa Sachs, Director of Columbia University's Centre on Sustainable Investment, 
a joint project of its law and climate schools on how corporations are utilising ISDS to challenge needed public policy, particularly in the area of environmental regulation, and more. Welcome to Gravity, Lisa. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. So we're going to be focused on ISDS. And before we really get onto some granular issues, could you please explain to our audience what ISDS is and how it was established? Definitely. Um, ISDS stands for Investor State Dispute Settlement. And it is a mechanism that allows investors, private investors, to bring claims against or to sue governments and to have those claims heard in private arbitration. It can be found in three different places, mainly in contracts. So in contracts between investors and host governments, the there can be a provision for dispute settlement that allows the investor to sue the government for a breach of the contract and to bring that claim to arbitration. It can be found in some states, mostly or only developing country states' investment laws. So in their national investment laws, they unilaterally offer that investors can bring claims under arbitration, under the investor state dispute settlement mechanism. And then they are also embedded in more than 3,000 treaties, investment treaties, which can be bilateral treaties between two governments or multilateral treaties, as in the case of the NAFTA, which those in the Americas will be familiar with, or the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the now infamous Energy Charter Treaty. These are all multinational investment treaties, or there are investment chapters that are embedded in trade treaties. That would be like the NAFTA. Um, And these are treaties, the investment treaties or the investment chapters and trade treaties are obligations that states are making to protect, to provide extra legal protections to investors that invest in their country. And part of those extra legal protections um, is this mechanism, this investor state dispute settlement mechanism that allows the investors to sue governments for breaches of those protections uh, and to have those claims heard in private arbitration. Right. And now, is this a framework that has structural conflict of interest issues? For instance, practitioners can double hat as arbitrators. And if only a small number of specialized lawyers practice in this field, and then they're deciding a case against a multinational corporation that in the next case they might want as a client, it seems that structurally we're looking at um, a very pervasive and corrosive conflict of interest. Or is there... Is that not how it works in practice? So it is definitely riddled with conflicts um, and arguably corruption. But let me take even one step further back before describing that. These claims, as I described, are heard in arbitration. The parties appoint the arbitrators. So when a dispute, when an investor files a claim, the investor will choose one arbitrator. The state chooses another And then either the parties or those two arbitrators choose a chair of the tribunal. These are, as you said, private practitioners. Many of them are 
part of a relatively small group of arbitrators who are very frequently nominated by parties to these types of disputes. And these uh, these tribunals take place outside of any domestic judicial system. So the rules that would normally, the rules of procedure that would normally govern disputes in a domestic uh, judicial system don't apply in the international in international arbitration. That means that these arbitrators have a lot of latitude to interpret the provisions and into it and to decide the claim um, as they see fit with very limited parameters, procedural rules, and um, and recourse in the event that they decide the claim wrong, for instance, which we can get into. Um, these claims, by definition, are, relate to public policy because one of the parties is always the state. These are claims against the state. So despite, and I'm sure that we'll talk more about that and the types of claims that are being brought, but despite the fact that these are claims that are inherently related to public policy, they are being decided by these private practitioners that are appointed by the parties. So already that raises some questions about the qualifications of the arbitrators and their interests in deciding the case. You raised what is now one of the many concerns with the system, which is the increasingly pervasive conflicts of interest of those arbitrators beyond any other questions about their qualifications to decide these disputes and what their interests are and their familiarity with the domestic context and so on. But as you rightfully described, there are no, there are currently no rules, certainly no um, uh, mandatory rules that govern the quote-unquote hats that these arbitrators can wear. So as you described, you can have cases in which a lawyer is representing a claimant, an investor, in one case. And in that case, they are really pushing for some provision to be interpreted in a certain way that is favorable to their client. That same um, lawyer can serve as an arbitrator in a different claim and can interpret that same provision in a way that will be favorable to his client in the in the case in which he's representing the client as a claimant. That type of quote-unquote double-hatting, being counsel in some cases and arbitrator in others, and the potential conflicts of interest it raises with respect to both is, is pervasive in the system, although um, it's quite hard to detect because many of these cases are not transparent. I'm going to add to that one additional component, which is that there are other roles that these that um, lawyers can play in these cases. Some of these claimants or the or the states uh, ask lawyers to come in as experts in these cases to speak to some particular areas of law, and then and we might talk further about this also. There, there's increasing um, financialization of these claims. So we have third-party funders that are investing in these claims for profit, and they too hire lawyers to support them in both selecting the claims and in their role that they play in shaping and managing their caseload. So we now have not only double hatting, but the potential for quadruple hatting <laughs> because these lawyers can play any of these roles um, simultaneously. They can be representing claimants, deciding cases, serving as experts, and supporting third-party funders in selecting and managing cases, um, which naturally raises a, a number of potential conflicts. So we have a, a major structural 
conflict of interest. We also have issues with transparency, and we'll talk more about the democratic deficit that this produces. But what I'd like to clarify for our audience is this is only a mechanism in which investors can sue states. So for instance, a state can't be a plaintiff to sue an investor and say, hey, actually, you're not really making an investment in my country or um, you have polluted my country, or you've breached the contract with my country. None of that can happen. The only plaintiffs are the corporations. And if that's the case, it seems it's kind of a win-win, right? Because they, if they go to court, they either win and can win an exorbitant award, or they can leverage their resource disparity, particularly against you know, if they're a multinational corporation with a wide array of resources and can hire an amount of lawyers, and then they're, say, Uh, opponent is a developing nation with a much smaller fund, um, they could leverage that for settlements, say, just the very act of filing a claim. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The the system is, of course, inherently, as you just said, uh, one-sided because it only allows investors to to bring claims. I, I should note just for complete accuracy that some state out of the more than a thousand known claims, and there are many more claims that are not known because there's no obligation of transparency in much of the system, which we could also talk about, as as you just alluded to. Um, But of the more than a thousand known claims, there have been a handful, literally handful, less than five, attempts to bring counterclaims against the same investor that brings a claim. So the only opportunity for states to even say, as you just said, uh, you're bringing a claim against me. You polluted and devastated our country. That type of response can only be brought. Uh, the only way to even raise that is in the context of a counterclaim, and counterclaims are generally unsuccessful for a number of legal reasons, uh, whether they relate to um, the jurisdiction of the arbit- of the panel to hear the counterclaim or um, the provisions of the treaty that limit the ability to bring counterclaims if they might relate to any different aspect of the case and so on. So I just wanted to say that in, in this, in this, uh, in our community of practice, we hear sometimes the suggestion that counterclaims can be, um, can be a measure to rebalance, but they are used so, so, so infrequently. And even when they are, they're not successful. So they're really negligible as a, as a means of um, rebalancing the system. So indeed, it is an entirely um, unbalanced system. Either the investor wins and can win exorbitantly or the investor loses. And, you know, at most, both parties uh, have paid for their legal counsel and even the legal fees can be exorbitant, um, particularly, as you said, when, a either well-funded claimant uh, goes up against any state who doesn't have as many resources as a well-funded claimant, but also because of this growing availability of third-party finance, uh, claimants don't even need to have the cost of the lawsuit on their own balance sheets. They can um, rely on these third-party funders who invest in the claims uh, for profit. And so it has really expanded the resources available to claimants to, uh, to bring these claims. So in 2015, Dr. Alfred Maurice de Zayas, who is the independent expert on the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order, reported to the Human Rights Committee 
on the corrosive impact of these international investment agreements and the ISDS uh, dispute mechanism process, including lack of transparency, accountability, conflicts of interest, and asymmetry of resources, which we've all just discussed. But he concluded that this resulted in a grave deprivation of national sovereignty and a shrinking public policy space, as well as a chilling effect on uh, regulatory actions. So how do we look at his critique way back in 2015 and as we are here now in 2023 and say, have things gotten at least a little better? It seems we're still facing many of the same problems, if not all of them, or are things getting worse? I really regret having been working on these issues for more than a decade, well over a decade. I wish I could tell you that we've been much more successful in changing course since 2015, but I really regret that that's not the case. I think, uh, let me start with a little, a little bit of positive news, and that is that there is growing recognition of a quote-unquote, legitimacy crisis of ISDS. And what I mean by that, and I think what the field means by that, is that that the concerns about these conflicts and the lack of transparency and the impacts on policy space and so on are becoming um, uh, more widespread. More and more stakeholders, and sometimes even the lawyers within the system, are increasingly critical of aspects of this system. That's the marginally good news is that it's not new to be raising these alarms. The much more sobering news is that the outcomes of the cases have only gotten worse in number, in the types of claims that are brought, and in the size of the awards and the damages, and the potential chilling effect that that has on states for for implementing um, legitimate public interest regulations. That's maybe one Actually, let me just speak to that a bit because it very much underpins um, uh, his point and his concerns in that quote, which is that arguably this mechanism was designed to protect investors from potential biases or corruption or delays or other uh, lack of due process in domestic judicial systems. Arguably, the idea was that foreign investors would face bias or challenges in local judicial systems, and that would deter investments. So if they could be offered not only these additional substantive uh, legal protections in these treaties or in investment law or in these contracts, but have a means of enforcing them directly, that that would overcome those challenges in domestic courts and would incentivize investment. There are many problems with that that we should unpack, but the main one that I want us to note in this particular context is that the types of claims that are being brought are not challenging discrimination on the basis of nationality or lack of due process, but the majority of cases are challenging legitimate measures that states are taking in in, in public interest. So they are challenging strengthened environmental regulations or the enforcement of environmental policies or the protection of protected areas or requirements to consult with local communities or requirements to compensate communities for harms caused or the banning of toxic additives from chemicals or in chemicals or um, in gasoline or the or the um, phase out of Um, coal-fired power plants or the phase-out of uranium or moratoria on fracking. These are all real cases. 
These are the types of public policy measures that investors are challenging using this measure. And as we've alluded to, the costs of these, the costs even of defending a claim can be extraordinarily high, many millions of dollars, but the awards themselves can be, it when, when successful, can be astronomically high in the hundreds of millions and sometimes billions of dollars that are awarded to investors um, that, that states are ordered to pay investors. Not only is the cost of that system extraordinarily high and the idea that we are ordering Ecuador or Pakistan or any country really to pay billions of dollars to investors for these measures that they're taking, but even the threat then of having to defend a claim and the risk of having to pay those sums has a chilling effect on states' sovereignty because either states are essentially facing a reality that either they regulate in the public interest and risk facing these expensive claims to potentially high awards, or they don't take the measure in the first place, which has devastating consequences for for their citizens, for our environment, and so on. So that's it's that's the hidden cost, I would say, of this system. And those costs are have only increased since 2015. The number of cases, the types of measures that are challenged, the size of the awards, the documented regulatory chill, all of those are worsening. And let me just end by telling you that he was not alone among the UN um, special rapporteurs uh, or the other human rights bodies for sounding the alarm at a number of um, experts on extreme poverty, on sovereign debt and human rights, um, a number of the, uh, the working group on business and human rights, a number of the UN bodies um, have uh, written reports on how ISDS undermines those core areas of human rights. And just this moment, as we speak, the um, the special rapporteur on the right to a healthy environment is uh, writing a report on exactly this topic on how ISDS undermines the right to a healthy environment. And he is um, seeking uh, input for his report right now. So just to say we're eight years after that first quote and, um, and still, still in the stage of sounding the alarm. Oh, that's atrocious, isn't it? But hopefully the crisis of legitimacy and more public attention to it means that we might um, have a fairer system. But I think it's pertinent now to take a step back and go on from the very first thing that you said, and that was that in the beginning, this was really meant to capture discrimination on nationality and um, direct expropriation by a government. It seems there was a trifle number of cases for decades, and then suddenly there's this massive proliferation of cases at the same time that we're looking at very nebulous, uh, amethyst um, claims that you couldn't really make in, for instance, a US court, an Australian court, and probably not in, in, in other courts. I'm talking about indirect expropriation or the right to have a stable investment framework, what is that? Does that mean that if a corporation invests in a state that it needs to know all the laws and therefore if, and if they change, then somehow its profits are hurt and the regulatory framework is essentially frozen at the time of investment? And we're also looking at 
what is it, uh, lost profits that they kind of assume that they will have. And we don't even know whether they will have these profits, actually, if they continue with a project. Kind of seems like it pays more to make a claim against a government because they put a moratorium on your extractive project than um, actually put in the money and do the project. (laughs) So in that excellent question that spans the history of ICS, you've raised so many absolutely critical and core uh, questions. So let me try to touch on on a few of them um, because everything you've said is uh, going to the core of the problems and the oddities also of this system. So so first of all, just to say a tiny bit more about the history, it's a bit odd to look at the uh, at the at the historical records of when the system was created or when this mechanism was um, proposed, because it's not on the basis of a real investigation into the barriers of the barriers uh, that investors are facing, or even into what investors want. It's it is it, even in those historical records, it's merely an assumption that's imposed really on developing countries that having this means of allowing investors to bring claims directly um, will accelerate or will uh, facilitate investment. I want to come back to that a bit at the end because that's such an important assumption that this is making. We're talking largely about the cost of the system, but we should interrogate the benefits and, and whether states are benefiting from the system. But let me come back to that in a moment. Um, so, so this system is imposed really without a great deliberation about whether this is really what's needed and what, what whether the benefits will be realized and what the cost might be. And indeed, as you said, what the, the provisions themselves on their surface, they don't actually seem so bad, I would say. They say that states won't discriminate on the basis of nationality, that they won't expropriate uh, investors' property, which means that they won't take the property away without due process and compensation and so on, that they'll treat investors fairly and equitably and provide investors full protection and security. They sound, I would say, even to me, relatively innocuous on their face. What is what, what, what we've seen, though, and what the history now shows, and the case law, as you said, has exploded, and what used to be just a couple of claims after the 2000s and is now more than 1,000 and growing every year, is how tribunals are interpreting those protections so, so broadly that really blows the mind and expands any reasonable understanding of those protections. So you've pointed to two of the most egregious, the idea of an indirect expropriation. With that, what The idea of an indirect expropriation is that even if a government doesn't take a property directly and seize a property, which would be a direct expropriation, that through regulatory measures, they can really undermine or eviscerate the value of the, um, of the investment. So what that looks like in this context is that investors are basically saying that all sorts of legitimate regulatory measures like uh, um, environmental protections or um, or requirements not to pollute or requirements to, uh, you know, or or um, any strengthened provisions around water protection and so on, those are being alleged to be 
indirect expropriations in that these regulatory developments undermine or reduce the value of an investment. So that is one broad interpretation. The second that you've alluded to that is really the most extreme in the system is how arbitrators are interpreting this idea of fair and equitable treatment. The concept of fair and equitable treatment has been interpreted, as you said, as a requirement that states protect the expectations of an investor. To be treated fairly, investors' expectations have to be protected. And what do arbitrators interpret that to mean? They say, exactly as you just said, that investors expect stability in the legal environment. They expect that when they undertake an investment, that the legal environment will not change, that the business environment will not change. And so to change the legal system or to change any aspect of the regulatory environment violates investors' expectations and therefore is a violation of fair and equitable treatment. So exactly as you said, this concept of treating investors fairly and equitably, which sounds benign, I would say, um, to the layman, has is interpreted as a stabilization clause that in, that governments cannot change their laws once an investor has invested or they are required, they will be required essentially to compensate or to pay investors for the impact on the investor of any change in the regulation. And again, just to recall that so many of these, of these challenged measures are measures that relate to uh, strength and environmental protection or, or protecting the public health or protecting public access to critical, to critical services um, like electricity or water services and so on. These are not, uh, these are measures that states are taking that they're obligated to take in fulfillment of their other obligations to their citizens or even their, um, their, internet, their other human rights obligations that they've committed to in other venues. And then let me touch on the last point that you packed into that excellent question, which is the size of the awards. So first, let me just agree with you that those protections of fair and equitable treatment and their interpretation as uh, protecting the investors' expectations cannot be found in domestic judicial systems. Those are substantive legal protections that go beyond those that are available under domestic legal systems, particularly as they are interpreted, the idea that um, that investors have protectable expectations um, of stability is certainly not found in any domestic judicial system. And then this, this final component that also cannot be found in other judicial systems, this idea that if a breach is, um, if the tribunal concludes that indeed the government breached one of these provisions, that the investor may be entitled to all of the future lost profits that it would have realized had the investment been able to proceed. So there, there is a, I mean, there are many cases like this. One of the ones that I find most shocking, but there are so many like this, is a case against Pakistan by a mining company that had not secured the licenses that it needed to operate. It still needed certain land use licenses, water licenses. It needed certain exploitation licenses. So it hadn't secured all the licenses it needed. It didn't therefore have a legal framework for 
for operating the mine. And it alleged that the government's actions were perpetually stalling this mine in a exceptionally complicated sector in an exceptionally complicated space where you know the governance of these extractive industries of mining in particular is so important to developing countries to get right to ensure that they are benefiting from the projects that the communities rights are protected that the environmental considerations are protected and so on these projects are exceptionally hard to um to govern and to govern properly. And therefore, the legal framework can be, or the the legal process can be um, slow and contentious as it should be, because it should allow for checks and balances and the participation of different stakeholders and different agencies and the review of of environmental impacts and so on. Those delays are often what's challenged. So indeed, that was the case in Pakistan and the claimant was successful. And so Pakistan had to pay the investor. And what damages did the tribunal award? The tribunal said, well, if the government had behaved properly, then this mine would be operational. And well, we don't have a contract. We don't know what the legal framework would have looked like. We're going to just assume that the government would have had to have given the investor all of these licenses that it hadn't yet gotten. Um, some of these provisions, the investor wouldn't have been able to have honored, you know, related, for instance, to the water access and so on, but the government would have had to have um, managed that so that the mine could be operational. And we would assume that the government would have given the investor some subsidies, some tax subsidies, uh, and so on. And they concocted this entire contract that didn't exist and determined that the mine would have made $4 billion dollars <laughs> in profits over its lifetime. And so Pakistan was ordered to pay this mine, this mining company, $4 billion plus $2 billion in interest because the case takes time. So interest accrues. So Pakistan was ordered to pay a mining company that had never operated one day $6 billion, $4 billion in lost profits plus $2 billion of interest. That happened to be coincidentally the same amount that the IMF had just given to Pakistan as an emergency bailout because Pakistan is facing an, a, an economic crisis. Um, so the size of these, the size of these awards, and the fact that they're based on these future lost profits is really unprecedented in other in other judicial systems. Uh, <laughs> yeah, unprecedented, and also just I, I don't see how you could ever make such a claim. Uh, and so when you have these ridiculous claims, and it seems that we're putting you know, we're putting investors, foreign investors at an advantage over domestic corporations and not just domestic corporations, but people in general. We're eviscerating sovereignty and in a way we're eviscerating democracy. So some, so I think yes, and sometimes even more directly than you can even imagine. So even just at a systemic level, this whole system and the, um, and the, 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 the risks of the costs of these cases and the risks of the awards just tilts regulatory processes toward the interests of investors and away from proper governance of, um, of communities and of public health and, and the environment and so on. That in and of itself undermines the rule of law in these countries. But sometimes the interests of communities are even more um, 
directly undermined by these claims uh, in at least two types of examples that I can mention. One is especially in these extractive cases or these cases where companies are um, having substantial local impact on local communities and therefore the communities are protesting or they're um, objecting to certain investment projects, again, often in the extractive sector, but it's not always in the extractive sector. It could be in renewable projects. It could be um, water projects. It could be ecotourism, so on. Projects that have a direct community impact. Communities have limited means of seeking, of of asserting their rights, um, even in the domestic context, and then certainly in the international context, even more limited means of asserting their rights. Um, and when they try to do so and and therefore cause delays with the project or um, or otherwise stall regulatory approvals, that's when these claims are triggered that can essentially in one fell swoop undermine the interests of the community and eviscerate the rights and the voices of the community that have been opposing the mine because um, because companies can be compensated for you know, the consequences of the communities trying to oppose a project or to delay um, approval processes. In in some egregious cases, one in particular in Copper Mesa, uh, in a case of Copper Mesa against Ecuador, the company, the, the community was opposing a mining project and the company responded with extraordinary violence, extraordinary violence against the community. And th- there was violent conflict in that community over this mine over a period of time. And eventually the government responding to this extreme violence denied final permits or revoked the permit of the mining company. The mining company sued Ecuador and won and won damages. The mining company was paid despite having, despite having um, acted heinously to say the very least, despite having violated the rights of the local community. In some cases like that, because that's not a unique case, the arbitrators may recognize that the mining companies behaved badly. And in those cases, the arbitrators sometimes say, okay, well, we recognize that the mining company may have exacerbated some of the violence. So we're going to um, to discount some of the awards. So rather than receiving the full uh, $30 million that they'd be awarded. We're going to discount that by $10 million and just give the mining company $20 million as compensation. So the outcomes are really perverse. So one of the other cases in which um, the ISDS has even more directly undermined the rights of the community is in one of the many lawsuits that has surrounded the disputes um, of Chevron in Ecuador. Uh, in th- that That mess has resulted in many dozens of lawsuits around the world. But in one of those, a community fought for decades to assert their rights against the against Chevron um, and for the environmental devastation in their community and for other rights violations and had won, had won an award against Chevron. The community, after fighting for decades, had won an award against Chevron. Chevron then turned around and sued the government to extinguish the rights of the community that had won the award, saying that enforcing that award, enforcing the community's rights and the award that they had won would have violated the, their protections under the treaty. And they were successful in that claim. 
So the tribunal ordered Ecuador to not enforce or to prohibit the enforcement of the award that the community had won, which is one of the most direct um, (laughs) examples of how the system can really undermine the rights of other affected stakeholders. Yeah, that was that was a terrible judgment, particularly because Chevron was sued in the U.S. in the Southern District, and then they fought bitterly for years to move it to Ecuador <laughs> because they said exactly. they would. Yeah, and then they said, "Oh no, 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 we never wanted it to be in Ecuador." Well, really, they just didn't want to get sued because they didn't exactly. want to um, pay what they needed to. But um, I think it's instructive for our audience to look at some examples of these cases. So we've got uh, environmental protections being challenged. We have water access. Many cases have to do with water privatization. And uh, when governments have seen that foreign investors have come in and privatized water, I think there are numerous water privatization cases against Argentina alone. Um, they weren't providing uh, water to everybody. They weren't providing clean water, but then they sued anyway. And then also in South Africa, an Italian mining company that sued because they said the black economic empowerment policy, which is a very necessary policy to help the black community after the corrosive and stygian effects of apartheid, they, they claimed that that was uh, somehow impeding their investment. They didn't want to have 26% of their company owned um, by black citizens. And, uh, and oh, and cigarette companies, tobacco companies. I yep. think Australia was sued because of uh, packaging. There's also health warnings, neurotoxin. I mean, there are lots. So if we could um, maybe go through some of the more egregious cases uh, so that our audience knows exactly what we're talking about. Yep, I, I can go back through those, but let me add two most two recent ones to your list, both specific cases and also thematically, which are cases that relate to the phase out um, or the prohibition of fossil fuel development. Um, that's just the latest in the long list of absolutely egregious claims against governments who are doing not only the right but the necessary thing. Uh, there was just a successful case brought against Italy this past year by um, a oil company called Rockhopper because responding to community um, uh, opposition and concern, Italy had prohibited oil drilling within 12 nautical miles of its shore. And that affected the investment of Rockhopper. So Rockhopper sued and was awarded over $100 million. Um, uh, that was that was just this past year. And now, um, now there's a slew of cases also against countries that are taking measures in line with their climate commitments. So to phase out um, fossil fuel, to phase out coal-fired power plants, for instance, there are now cases that are challenging that. If your viewers are in the U.S., they may be horrified to know that TransCanada, which had been vigorously um, uh, opposed here in the U.S. on a number of grounds, but including, of course, climate grounds, and that was one of the grounds in which Obama first had denied the necessary licenses to TransCanada because of the um, impacts on climate, TransCanada brought a $15 billion claim under the NAFTA, because the NAFTA has this investor state dispute settlement. So the U.S. right now is facing a $15 billion claim from TransCanada 
because of uh, having been denied this necessary permit. And those $15 billion, again, as we already discussed, is all of the alleged lost profits that TransCanada claims that they're denied. And sorry, that was the Keystone Pipeline, but then Trump allowed exactly. it, but then Biden That's exactly right. So it? when Trump allowed it, all of a sudden this case was uh, suspended, and now it's um, now it's live again, and now it's working its way through the arbitration system. Um, so that just, I think, and that's not well known within the U.S. Um, this this mechanism can feel very foreign to many people in the United States because we don't hear about it very often. But this is really affecting us too. We are facing a fifteen billion dollar claim. Um, the, the the history of claims against the U.S. I might note the U.S. is often successful in these claims. And I, and it's not because they have any better rule of law or they're doing anything better than other countries. But I think the arbitrators know that if the U.S. if the U.S. were ever ordered to pay $15 billion to a foreign um, company, that that would probably be the end of the system <laughs> forever because it, the idea of the U.S.'s sovereignty being so impinged and being required to compensate a foreign entity would be um, so rejected, I think, by the American public. And yet that's, of course, what's happening all around the world and other countries being forced to pay these costs. Um, so indeed, you've, you've, you've mm-hmm. indicated many of these, and these are the actual claims when countries put in place um, regulations to protect their waterways, to designate protected areas. Uh, the, the privatization cases that you referred to are both in water and in electricity, and those relate to governments doing their job, what they're required to do, which is to ensure access and affordability of public services. So when those services are being provided by private companies where um, limits on tariffs and so on may affect their profitability, that has been the basis for these disputes. You mentioned the tobacco claims, which are notorious um, uh, because of their absurdity, which was, again, um, that governments were, you know, in, in different ways were, had public health measures to require either certain warnings or plain packaging of cigarette boxes as a public health measure to discourage toxic smoking. Um, and those were the types of measures that were challenged. Um, so these are really, just to emphasize your point, what's at stake is countries that are taking legitimate, not only legitimate, but necessary measures to protect public health, the environment, human rights, and so on, and those are the measures that are being challenged. If I can maybe go back to what I um, what I uh, uh, alluded to before, which is the the benefits and the costs of the system. Um, when tribunals are hearing these claims, when tribunals are hearing these claims, the legitimacy of the government's measure rarely factors in. That's not what the what what the um, tribunals are often looking at, they're looking squarely at the protections that, at the substantive protections and provisions in these treaties and whether those substantive protections and and provisions were breached. And if so, no no matter how legitimate the measure was, the government should compensate. These arbitrators are not in the business of considering whether these measures are legitimate or whether the public interest outweighs the private interests and so on. Of course, in domestic systems, our domestic, we have every domestic system has robust procedures and doctrines that are designed to precisely grapple with exactly that tension to how to balance private interests and public sovereignty and so on. And so all of our domestic judicial systems have robust uh, doctrines to 
to allow that to take place, first of all, transparently and with stakeholder participation, but also under various doctrines and guidelines that have evolved over, um, in some cases, decades, in some cases, centuries, none of that exists in this international in this in international arbitration. So what the arbitrators are looking at purely is whether these um, whether the provisions have been um, breached. Just to just to quickly circle back to the, the what I find to be one of the um, craziest things uh, that we haven't even discussed is that this whole system, we've talked extensively about the cost of the system, the cost of the awards, the cost in regulatory chill, the cost on um, citizens' rights and so on. And the costs are extraordinary. They're mounting. Um, they're relatively well-documented. But what about the benefits? Because we should be assessing these costs relative to the benefits. And again, the the um, premise of this whole mechanism, the premise of the treaties, the premise of ISDS is that these legal protections for foreign investors that are enforceable directly in ISDS will lead to greater investment. And the further assumption is that greater investment will necessarily lead to sustainable development or will lead to economic development more generally. Those are fundamental assumptions that underpin this entire system that we've been discussing. And in fact, neither of those assumptions has been proven conclusively. So first of all, we don't need to prove conclusively that not all investment is good for sustainable development. We've already talked throughout our conversation about many types of investment that are that are not good for development or that can have major impacts on communities, on the environment, on rights, on access to essential resources, and so on. So not all investments contribute to development, and some investments are also just holding companies and so on. Um, But it turns out that the evidence doesn't even show that these enforceable legal protections have an impact on investment flows. There have been 20 years of empirical analyses trying to establish whether these treaties have contributed to greater investment of any type. And the the most recent meta study of 74 of these empirical studies said that the, that it, that the potential, that the impact in these empirical studies was so negligible. So, so as to be considered zero. So this whole system is premised on this idea that this is a necessary legal structure to incentivize and encourage necessary investment. And the evidence doesn't support that, which I think is a really critical aspect to this whole puzzle. Because as we think about how to address these substantial costs, we have a system that is not even benefiting states, and that should inform what we do about it. Yeah, and it seems that some of these uh, cases aren't even by foreign investors in the host state. For instance, I've noticed that there's been this real escalation of this legal practice of BIT access and advantage planning, which is really a euphemism for treaty shopping. It's like, okay, we'll advise you on which treaty defines nationality the loosest and investment very loose and contains flexible ratione temporis and lacks the denial of a benefits clause, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems that what's happening is we're getting referential restructuring um, that even allows domestic businesses to go against their own countries because, and one of my favorite acronyms ever, they use the lies or the locally incorporated entities, and then they have this intermediary in the foreign investment um, partner, and then they they make a claim through the intermediary and so against their own state as supposedly the host state. Uh, and this is just 
this is just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And you're right. There's no benefit to it. And all these loopholes, it seems that all they're looking for is to file a complaint to challenge regulation. And that's really what it's there for, to challenge regulation outside of the democratic judiciary process of a country, instead using these uh, conflicted arbitrators and get get these exorbitant profits and very nebulous, tenuated damages and claims. So yes, to all of that, um, not only is treaty planning becoming, um, you know, mainstream in the way that tax planning already has been for a long time, uh, both look, both finding the treaties that are most favorable in the ways that you mentioned. But the other thing that we're increasingly seeing is law firms that are putting out advisories to their clients saying, um, if you are already invested in Tanzania, or if you are planning to invest in Tanzania, well, Tanzania is considering some reforms to their extractive sector to try to benefit, to try to capture more domestic benefits locally. Um, so if you are invested in in Tanzania or you're considering investing, you should consider structuring your investment so as to maximize your legal protections. So just to show that even when there's no evidence that these treaties actually attract or facilitate um, investment in the first place or help countries to attract investment in the first place, they do affect how those investments that would already take place are structured. Um, and your example of what's called round tripping is another perfect example, which is um, which is a domestic company that doesn't enjoy any of these rights um, because domestic companies uh, don't benefit from these international protections. Um, but they can, as you said, set up a holding company in another country that has a treaty with their own country and through that holding company um, bring claims. And And it's even more perverse because minority shareholders in domestic companies can bring claims when other domestic shareholders can't, for instance. So the disparity of access and how the system is used um, is is yet another layer. The the thing that makes all of this very difficult to reform is that um, many of those within the system are really benefiting from from this system and this system continuing. So this the arbitration international arbitration is a growing field for law firms. We've already the the, the amount of the the litigation costs alone are growing because these cases are becoming more and more complex and litigious. And, um, you know, lots of time can be spent just on choosing the right arbitrators and so on. So this is a, a minefield for, for, uh, for the law firms um, who are doing quite well with this system. Thank you very much. Of course, the investors enjoy the (laughs) system because as you said, you know, it protects investments, even when the investments themselves would have failed without such a system because the investors haven't done um, due diligence or wouldn't have earned appropriate licenses and so on. And they now have a second chance to be not only made whole, but to secure all of the profits that they wouldn't have gotten, but for the system, because the investment never would have gotten off the ground. We now have the third-party funders who are investing in the system for profit and are um, proudly declaring to their to their investors um, and to their shareholders that the returns on the investing in these cases are extraordinary. The World Bank houses one of the facilities that 
hears these disputes, the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes is housed at the World Bank. So the World Bank also benefits from the system. And the World Bank goes around the world advising countries to conclude treaties with this mechanism in it, or even to include this mechanism in their national laws, um, which is a unilateral offer. So there's a lot of entrenched interests in this system. There's a lot of money <laughs> uh, that is available um, for the taking, and that has made a genuine discussion of the benefits and the costs and the impacts on human rights, the impacts on the environment, the impacts on climate, the impacts on public policy, on sovereign space, very difficult. Because as they say, if your advice or your suggestion undermines someone's salary, <laughs> it's a big uphill battle to to convince them. So, um, so it, it's been very difficult to um, to try to um, change this very entrenched system. Yeah, everyone uh, seems, except of course the public, uh, has something to gain from this. It's like Bleak House. So many hundreds of years ago, Charles Dickens already saw that the law makes a business for itself. Um, but what you said was very interesting about the World Bank that crafted the original settlement of investment disputes uh, between states and nationals of other states in 1966. But um, what I think is really interesting is that it seems there were only a handful of cases. And then after, after I think in 88, when the uh, World Bank established the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, which its sole purpose is to um, ensure against the very things that supposedly ISDS is meant to, you know, provide um, a mechanism for, you see this proliferation of cases. And then the IFC seems to be making a bunch of money from it, the World Bank's private investment facility, where it's a shareholder in projects that it, and it stands to benefit from ISDS in that way. And you also mentioned how Pakistan had to pay $6 billion, which for Pakistan is an exorbitant, I mean, for any country is an exorbitant amount of money. And the IMF is just right there to give the money. Well, that could happen with Argentina too, right? It was, it had to pay. And then suddenly the IMF was right there to give the money. But of course, the money doesn't go to the people at all. Exactly. It goes to uh, the foreign investor. And so even looking at how this system started, oh, all these developing nations just don't have the civilized laws that we have. It was part of that structural inequity of international law. There was a recent article in Climate Policy that said two-thirds of current cases are extractive industries from the north against developing nations. And so how does ISDS continue this or, or rather entrench the structural positioning and the inequity between the global north and the global south? So yes, um, to all of it. I mean, the, the the international financial system, the international development systems are so broken. And this is one example of how massively both broken and also incoherent they are because the means of assessing uh, governments, you know, financial security and the, and the, and, you know, the, the terms for um, aid and assistance is ignorant or, you know, ignores these, this other international system that is requiring governments to pay massive, massive, massive payouts to investors or even to funders who are located in, in tax havens. So the whole system is, the whole system is massively broken. The corruption of the World Bank, I find to be particularly troublesome because of their, because of the many roles that they, conflicting roles that they play in this. They are advising states to 
to put ISDS into their contracts and to put ISDS into their national laws and to put and to conclude treaties with ISDS. Then, as you noted through the IFC, they are investing in projects and the projects that that can bring claims under the system, and then those claims are heard under their own facility under ICSID. So that's and all of this in an institution that is meant to be oriented toward achieving sustainable development. So that is. Um, in my view, a really a, a corruption of the World Bank um, and a complete perversion of the role that they're meant to play. The the there's been you know on one hand one could say that in out of the thousand more than a thousand cases that have brought many now have been brought against developed countries too. Um, those are no better in my view. I should just say because those are also challenging legitimate. Measures so the fossil fuel phaseouts or the tobacco cases those have also been brought those have been brought against developed countries too and those are no better. Um, but what is odd is that developed countries are waking up a bit to this threat um, and are starting to mitigate their own exposure to ISDS, but without letting their developing country partners off the hook. So within the EU, just within the past couple of years, the EU, uh, with one instrument, terminated all bilateral agreements among themselves, all bilateral investment agreements among themselves, so that EU states can't sue each other now under ISDS, but nothing with respect to ISDS in their treaties with developing countries or with other countries. Same with the U.S. In the in the new version of the NAFTA, the U.S. limited its exposure to ISDS with respect to Canada and even with respect to Mexico. But again, not with respect to its international partners and not saying anything on the world stage about the problems with the system and how if it's not good enough for the U.S., it's not good enough for the EU, that it's equally problematic for developing countries. So Indeed, as you said, the whole system is broken and remains tilted against developing countries in every which way, and uh, and this is one of them. Actually, let me just quickly note another um, development in the news, which is uh, there's a lot of discussion right now around another one of these multilateral instruments, and that's the Energy Charter Treaty, which is being vigorously debated right now uh, in the EU. The Energy Charter Treaty is... Um, a multilateral investment treaty with over 50 members that specifically protects investments in the energy sector and is being is the main treaty that's being used by fossil fuel companies to challenge measures to phase out fossil fuels. So it is um, the subject of intense debate among um, the public and even among governments in the EU. But what I find, um, inter- first of all, I'm glad that it's that it's being intensely debated and many EU countries are indicating that they plan to withdraw from this treaty because um, they recognize that the treaty protections in the, in the energy charter treaty are completely antagonistic to their climate goals. So European countries are pulling out and that's laudable for sure. But what I do find notable is that they are only withdrawing with respect to themselves. There's not a public message that this is not a good treaty for anyone for the same reasons that the EU should is rightfully recognizing its own exposure under this treaty because fossil fuel companies can challenge climate related measures that should be reason enough to call for the termination of this treaty for all stakeholders not only with respect to the EU so just just pointing out that this you know the 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 um disparate discussion and what seems 
appropriate for developed countries versus developing countries um, persists even in the context of reform efforts. That's international law, right? It started from colonialism and here we are still entrenching it in uh, one form or another. But I really wanted to hone in on this issue with fossil fuels and ISDS uh, being used to um, really uh, continue fossil fuels and prevent this transition, this very needed transition, because we're in an existential crisis, a climate precipice. We have a very short window to um, change our policy and transition to cleaner energy. And yet it seems that ISDS is a gift to fossil fuel companies. Absolutely. I think that this is the latest of the critical areas of public interest that is threatened by this system. Um, And it's a major one. It's an existential one. It is just yet another one on this long list because the challenges that it poses are were absolutely foreseeable because of the challenges that the system has posed to other critical areas of human rights and sustainable development and public interest regulation and so on. But absolutely, um, this this mechanism poses a real risk to the energy transition because what is urgently needed is for governments to phase out their fossil fuel, their fossil fuel sectors, the, the production, the generation and the use and so on. And that's going to require many different regulations and measures and the denial of permits and so on. And all of those measures that are absolutely required for the energy transition and to address climate change are the types of measures that have been and that will continue to be challenged under ISDS for as long as the system remains. Mm. And I mean, that is just, (laughs) I have no words, (laughs) you know, I mean, this is a podcast, we need to have words. And yet, sometimes, you know, they fail you because it's such an ineffably Stygian uh, environment. However, um, one thing that I've often thought about with respect to international law is the weakness it has structurally because of its fragmentation. Here we have the ISDS scheme that does not at all look at international human rights law, international environmental law. For instance, if it could apply these principles, it wouldn't make the decisions that it makes. And we have the polluter pays principle, we have the precautionary principle from international environmental law. Why do we continue to have this fragmentation? It doesn't make sense. We don't have fragmentation in other jurisdictions, right? In a domestic jurisdiction, you can't completely avoid one area of law. There are legal principles that are inherent in the various laws that we litigate. Is there a movement to have um, a holistic international law where if we're going to have investor disputes, they have to take into account international human rights law. They have to take into account international environmental yep. law. They cannot have this siphoning of international law that doesn't so account for you're, that. You're, you're pointing to a very real problem, and it is it is what some have suggested, that these treaties, which which actually do reference international law as one of the um, interpretive tools for understanding the treaties' protections and provisions, should be better integrated into decision-making. I have to say it's not my preferred approach because these arbitrators, until, well, for a couple of reasons, these arbitrators are themselves not experts in human rights. They're not experts in climate change. They're not experts in environmental policy. And so I'm not sure that the, the solution to this, or I don't think that the solution to this is having arbitrators 
try on their own to balance these competing areas of international law. I also, that just simply doesn't address the fundamental problem that we talked about before, which is that this system has extensive costs with no real benefits. So to my mind, we need a more coherent approach to this. It's not just the integration of other areas of international law into the decision-making of tribunals, but that that is a more coherent approach to international investment governance. We, we are trying to, we need a system of international governance that is supportive of our international human rights framework, our sustainable development goals, our international climate goals, that helps to advance investment that is supportive of those goals, that discourages investment that is not supportive of those goals, and that supports dispute resolution in a way that is consistent with principles of human rights, of rule of law, and so on, which this system doesn't. So, so yes, in, in general, what you're saying, that these, these areas of international law should be coherent, that I agree with. But I don't think the solution is to have greater reference to those areas in the context of disputes. At least I don't think that's the best solution um, if I were to write the solution, because I think it, it, it is, that, is, that is only dulling the edge of this sword rather than really rethinking how we can build a system that is supportive of our global goals. Yeah, I, I vehemently agree with you. I don't support the ISDS system. I support uh, a more holistic system, comprehensive system. But I'm wondering what your take on that is. What do you see as a comprehensive system for international global governance? Like, for instance, should we have a tenured bench? Should we have, say, a pro bono panel for uh, least developed uh, countries and developing nations? Should we have counter complaints against corporations? Because in international law, corporations can make claims, but they don't have liability, but they should, right? So um, we need, you know, counter complaints and also just complaints against uh, in investors and corporations in general. So how do you see yeah, it's an excellent uh, a question. comprehensive system of it, global investment? It's an investment excellent question governance? because everything you've just suggested has been put forward as a as a as a potential solution by various stakeholders. So the EU is proposing this uh, a more permanent court to adjudicate these types of claims. Uh, there are others that are putting forward um, business and human rights arbitration rules that would essentially bring this dispute settlement within and against um, companies. Um, and I, and you know, to my mind, each of those is somewhat responding to some of the myriad interrelated challenges and concerns that we've been addressing relative to the uncertain or unproven benefits at all. So I don't think that either the proposed permanent investment court or these other ad hoc arbitration rules that expand arbitration to other stakeholders solve the fundamental problems. The permanent court only addresses some issues around the conflicts of the arbitrators and maybe their qualifications, but it leaves in place the more systemic problems with this whole System, the premises, the, the the inaccurate premises on which it's built, that this whole system is necessary, and the outsized, privileged legal protections that are afforded to foreign investors, the exp- the potential expansive interpretations of those provisions, and the potential for extremely large awards that are crippling to states and or are chilling legitimate regulation. So I don't see any of those more fundamental challenges is being addressed by a permanent investment court. 
And my concern with other arbitration rules and expanding arbitration rules to other stakeholders, for instance, using them against companies and so on, is that it expands many of these other aspects, other these other concerns over legitimacy to other sectors. So arbitration has a number of concerns related to transparency, related to its integration with domestic law, related to access to third parties, to, to affected stakeholders and so on that are unresolved in arbitration. Arbitration wasn't meant to balance the interests and the consideration and the participation of a number of actors. So I don't think it is a system that is well-suited to grapple with these really challenging areas related to um, corporate impacts on on communities, on human rights, on the environment, on the sustainable development challenges. So my 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 overall approach would be to have a First of all, I think we need to be supporting states in their domestic governance of investors. But that includes both helping states to understand how to more responsibly attract sustainable investors in the critical sectors and in the geographies in which they're trying to attract investment. What are the barriers to that investment? How can they target the types of investments that would be that are supportive of their sustainable development goals? And then we need to support states in developing robust regulatory frameworks that govern that investment and that account for the interests and the uh, rights of affected stakeholders and so on. So to me, the emphasis should be on strengthening domestic regulatory systems, domestic judicial systems, and so on, so that that states can grapple with these challenges of uh, of competing interests and the and the impacts locally. There is a role for investment governance because many of the challenges related to international investment are inherently international. Pollution, data protection, antitrust considerations, there are a number of areas that are that are necessary to govern at an international level because they cannot be governed at a domestic level. And there again, we need a more coherent international policy-oriented discussion among governments about the role of investment law in addressing these these this, uh, these challenges of an international nature, um, and we're not at that level yet. So that would be my my proposed course of action would be to terminate these treaties, to get rid of ISDS, which I think has been only problematic without any real benefits, and to turn our attention to supporting states in their regulatory development and enforcement and to addressing uh, the challenges, the international challenges related to investment um, in a in a proper international forum. Yeah. If you want to invest in a country, then deal with that domestic Exactly. System. Exactly. That's exactly right. Well, thank you so very much for your time and your astute insight on this topic and expertise. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you so much, Alexandra. It's such a pleasure. As you can tell, I could talk forever, but um, I know. <laughs> but it's been really a pleasure talking to you. Your questions have been wonderful and excellent, and I look forward to further discussion. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.